Welcome to Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. Back in 2010, I handed a gentleman my business card. You know, obviously at the top it said Shriver Carmona, and he looked at it and he looked at my name and he pointed to it and said, Oh, so is this your dad here? And, and you're, you're working for your dad? <laughs> Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Goldman, your host for Life in Accounting, the Where Accounts Go podcast. That clip was from our guest, Derek Shriver, a partner with Shriver Carmona and Company, a CPA firm in San Antonio, Texas. This is a first for us in that this episode is basically part two of a previous episode with his partner, Chris Carmona. When Chris told us the story of how they began that practice, I found it so interesting that I thought it would be good to get Derek's side of the story as well and, and how it progressed from his end. Shriver Carmonium Company has an excellent reputation locally, particularly for a practice that's relatively so young. So I think this episode will be valuable for anyone considering ever starting your own firm, whether in the near future or whether in the distant future. So without further ado, here's Derek. Derek, thank you for agreeing to be a guest on the show today. I know that it's coming up to busy season, so I really appreciate you taking the time out to record this for our listeners. Absolutely, Mark. I, you know, I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, no problem. Well, after interviewing your partner, Chris Carmona, in mid-December, I thought it would be interesting for everybody to get the rest of the story. Just to refresh everybody's memory, Chris spoke about several aspects of the firm, but at least for me, one of the most memorable parts was that he said he got an email from you sort of out of the blue saying, you know, would you like to go in with me and buy a practice? <laughs> I assume there's a whole lot more to the story, uh, and I'd like to you know, find out more about your background as well. But if you don't mind, take us back to that, that time and you know, what led you up to that point where you decide to go that direction? Sure. You know, I um, just want to mention Chris did a great job and my wife and I listened to it together and he got about 99% of it right. He did leave one most in, one important thing out that my wife mentioned, but to kind of take you back to that point, at the time I was working at Valero, I had uh, graduated in 2005 from UTSA with my accounting degree, went to go work for a CPA firm. I was actually Chris's replacement. I, don't, I can't remember if he mentioned that or not, but I was actually Chris's replacement. He had left the firm to go to KPMG. So I kind of took over his seat, which is actually where I had met my wife. My wife was also working there in the accounts payable department and you know, was working with Chris for several years. And so you know, I joined to replace Chris you know, I probably only stayed there for about a year and a half, left that CPA firm to go work. I was doing audit at the time to go work for Valero's internal audit department. So I went from public to private about 
two years into my time there at Valero, I started moonlighting on the side doing taxes, just just trying to earn a little bit of extra income. Started off, you know, family and friends, and it kind of grew. I was probably doing over the three years that I was doing this, I you know, I was probably doing about seventy-five to eighty-five tax returns on an annual basis. And it was about that point that I decided that tax preparation was kind of my passion. I enjoyed helping people. I enjoyed helping small businesses. And so I basically made a decision to either join a firm with my three years of experience in small book of business as a senior, maybe, or I was going to go out and try to acquire a CPA firm. The time, the small book of business that I had wasn't enough for me to leave my full-time job at Valero and support a family. We had just bought a house around that time. And so there was a gentleman that I was working with. His name was Brandon Elke. He sat behind me. He was an internal auditor. And he and I had plans to, to go out and try to find a CPA firm. And he lived in Seguin. I lived in, obviously, San Antonio. And so my wife didn't think that was a good idea for us to set up a practice in Seguin. So she said, because she was still working at the CPA firm, she told me, you know, you need to call Chris. He's, you know, he's putting in a lot of hours. He looks stressed out. I'm not sure if he's, if he's quite happy. He had left KPMG to go back to that CPA firm as a manager. And my wife was still there at the time. And so she says, why don't you give him a call? He, he doesn't look too happy. And so since then, I had found a firm through a broker, actually. A broker reached out to me and kind of gave me some insight on a firm that he was representing, on a CPA firm he was representing. And so I called him up and said, hey, you want to grab, you want to grab a bite to eat and talk? And so we went out to Chewy's on 281. And I said, hey, look, I'm looking at moving out on my own. There's a CPA firm that's up for sale. And Virginia tells me you're a hard worker and that you, you, know, you may not be happy where you're at. Do you want to do it? And so he said, yeah, you know, send me the information. He looked it over because at that time we had gotten the financials and signed the non-disclosure agreement. I had him sign the same agreement and we looked at it together, kind of ran the numbers and you know, it made sense. And so it was, I credit my wife to placing that phone call to Chris. Brandon Elke actually did leave Valero and he did purchase the CPA firm and he's actually very successful in Seguin. He has his own shop up there as well. So, but I, I tease Chris all the time that, you know, he doesn't really have to thank me. He has to thank my wife because if we're not for her, I might've been in, I might've ended up in Seguin with Brandon. Hmm. How long had your wife been working with Chris? She had been there for, I want to say about five or six years. Oh, okay. So when we had our first child, she left, you know, she stayed home with the kids, but Chris remained there. And shortly after we formed our partnership. Okay. I was intrigued that you and Chris hadn't worked together at the same time at the same place on the first. Yeah. And I, I really knew nothing about him. You know, I trusted my wife's intuition I mean, she did marry me, so she she must have some <laughs> judgment of character. Just kidding. But, um, you know, she would explain to me how he was always the first one there, last one to leave. You know, he would come in with bloodshot eyes from working all night. But, you know, he, he was consistent. He worked hard. And, you know, she could tell that he wasn't happy. So, and obviously, she would go out to lunch with him every once in a while and just hang out when the office would get together and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy to think that, you know, you would start a business with someone you barely even know, but again, it's, it's all due to my wife's intuition. Okay. Okay. And just to clarify, cause I like for our listening audience that, that has questions about how processes work, so to speak, you said a broker 
reached out to you and talked to you about the firm. Had had you filled out some interest forms on the internet or something that, how, how did that broker know to reach out to you in the first place? I did. There's actually two brokers that are pretty well known here in Texas, I would say. But, you know, I was kind of scouring the internet, just Googling things, you know, CPA firm for sale. San Antonio came across this website. And on that website, you kind of pick your location and it has a list of the firms that are currently up for sale. And so you click on the links and it kind of gives you a very generic, basic information about the firm for sale. And so I filled out the internet contact form. And within a day, the gentleman called me. We sat down over lunch, kind of interviewed me and kind of wanted to know a little bit about my background and what my plans were for the future. And that was kind of that screening process. I guess he really liked you know, my story and what I had to tell him. And so he set up the, the meeting between myself and the uh, CPA that was retiring. Okay. Okay. It was a local broker? Y'all met in person? Well, yeah, he did. He, I believe he was from Dallas. He okay. did fly down to meet me after we had our phone interview. He you know, flew down to meet me in person. But I believe he represents everybody in Texas and maybe like Oklahoma and maybe some of the surrounding states. That's kind of his territory. Okay. Okay. So you're sitting in Valero. You're an internal audit. You're at a company that many people would consider to be one of the best employers in the area and what many people would consider to be a very secure position with growth potential. And what caused you to, I guess, what did you just have an itch to have your own practice or what, what caused you to, to think about going out on your own for a lot of people? Yeah, that's I, oh, absolutely. And, you know, as accountants, we're typically conservative. Yes. You know, at the time I was just eager, you know, just growing up, I've always wanted to kind of be my own boss, so to speak. I mean, I had my first job when I was in third grade. I was the local paper boy and then got my first kind of quote real job when I was a sophomore in high school. And I've been working ever since then. And throughout my time, you know, I've always kind of had big dreams. I would always come up with these ideas of how to make money. And I've tried everything. I mean, anything you can think of, I've tried it. But I kind of got good at taxes and, and, you know, my communication skills while working at Valero significantly improved because of the professionals and the, and the leaders that were, that I was being surrounded by. And so, you know, it was just one of those things that I was just kind of eager to, to go out and do my own thing. You know, my wife and I didn't have any kids at the time. So that's one thing that I did not have to worry about was providing for my children. And so it, it was just kind of the right timing. I was young. I was 28 when I left Valero and started my own firm. So, you know, that was a hurdle in itself, but I've always kind of been that person that if I didn't know something, I'd go out there and, and, and learn it on my own. I mean, I went from having, you know, just a handful of clients to over 300 just overnight. And, you know, for, for a lot of people, that would be a pretty daunting task, but I found it a challenge that, you know, something that was, that would be challenging for me and something that I think would have, you know, just kind of catapulted my career. Okay. And you, and you guys took what some people would consider to be a riskier approach, or I, I guess there's two sides of it. But if I remember the interview correctly from Chris, didn't you guys get an SBA loan? We did. You know, and, and just to kind of give you a little bit of background, that was right when Obama was elected. And we went the SBA route because the banks, they like that guarantee from the government that if you know something were to default, that at least the government would kind of kick in. Now, it is more costly to have that guarantee, but there was a 
a law that Obama passed literally weeks before we closed on our deal that saved us. He waived SBA closing fees. I think it saved us like twelve to $15,000. And so that would have had to come out of our pocket or be rolled into the note. And so we really at the time said, well, if there's no, if we can go either SBA or conventional and from a cost perspective, there's no difference, but from a bank's perspective, they're willing to loan on the SBA side. Then we said, you know, let's do it. With that process comes a lot of background checks. You had, we had to submit fingerprints, credit checks, background checks, criminal history, all that good stuff. And it, the process took a lot longer because of all that, but that was almost our only option because we didn't have a book of business already that was significant enough for a bank to go out and, and do a conventional loan. Okay. Okay. What advice would you have for someone that's looking to purchase a practice? Maybe they're earlier on in their career like you were and, and they're entrepreneurial and they're thinking about doing the same thing you did. Any advice you'd have for them? Anything you would have oh, differently? Yeah. I've got tons. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I don't know. I think, I don't know if Chris mentioned this, but we've actually done this twice. You know, we did our first one in 2010 and then we did another one in 2012. And I've learned a lot over those past two transactions. You know, I would say if you're young, you're, you're, you're going out there and, and you want to shave off plenty of years of your working life, because that's basically what you're doing. You know, you're kind of trading debt for hours or years of service. Because it takes a long time to build up a big book of business, you know, if you're going out on your own and you're doing it by yourself, you know, it's going to, it's going to take some time. So have patience. But if you want to kind of jump into it with two feet, then go out and get some debt and find the right firm. I think once you do find that right firm, there's a couple of things you definitely want to do. You know, the first thing you always obviously want to do is interview the CPA that's retiring. You want to make sure you understand the, the reason for his retirement. You want to discuss staff makeup. What's the turnover like, you know, at the firm? I think that's, that's pretty telling of the type of environment that you're getting yourself into. You want to identify any industries or clients that constitute a big book of the business. You want to discuss what type of billing arrangements he has with his existing clients. And then you also want to discuss kind of the transition of the timeline and kind of what he's committing, he or she is committing to upon, you know, upon execution of the transaction. So kind of once you lay all that out and you get comfortable with this person's character and the type of office he's running, you want to do your due diligence. You want to obviously request financial statements, tax returns. You want to review trends and revenue, review fixed variable costs, client retention rates. One thing you definitely want to do is you want to, what the banks call, you want to put a shock test to the, to the financials. And basically what that means is, okay, let's assume that expenses remain relatively flat. What happens if 10, 20, 30% of your revenue falls off? Would you still be okay in those situations? And we also want to identify, you know, what types of leases and commitments this CPA has and whether or not those are transferable. And then lastly, you want to identify the cutoff of accounts receivable because when you're stepping in into this CPA shoes, there's going to be some money that comes in that basically is his money, you know? Yeah. And so you may have, you're going to have to plan for those few weeks of really not getting any money. And so making sure you have adequate line of credit established. And then once everything is done, the documents are signed, then you, you know, you want to talk about how are we going to communicate this, this to the clients? In both of the deals that we had, we sent out dual letters in the retiring CPA's envelope. So basically two letters, one on each letterhead, 
CPA's letter explained kind of the reason for retirement and the reason why the particular CPA was selected as the successor. And then our letter basically introduced ourselves and kind of assured the clients that nothing's going to change. We're not going to increase or decrease fees in terms, you know, uh, processes and and things of that nature will will stay the same. We put a two-year timeline on it. So we said for two years, we're not going to change anything because we we didn't want clients to get scared and, and just and not even give us a chance. You also want to split those clients up into kind of ABC buckets. And, you know, maybe you meet with your A clients, you phone call for your B clients, and maybe just a letter to your C clients. And so that, that's also very important. So I would say that that would be some, some pretty good advice that I think that we've learned over the past two transactions that, you know, if you're going to do this, make sure that you, you go through those processes. Okay. I'm curious, did the broker give you any idea of what typical retention is like with your client base? Is there any rule of thumb, for instance, you know, 80% of the clients generally stay with the firm or do they give you any idea or is it pretty much case by case? No, they didn't. You know, and I think every situation is different. You know, with our first CPA firm that we purchased, I think we had over a 90% retention rate. Wow. I can't remember. I can't even think of, you know, of any clients that didn't give us a chance and that's still not with us today from that first transition. On the second one, it was a little bit different. The first CPA had accounting slash bookkeeping, payroll, and taxes. The second firm was 100% tax only. And so that one was mainly high net worth clients. And we had a situation where there was one particular person that generated about 30% of the annual revenue. And so this was a, a very wealthy individual who had multiple businesses And so because of that high concentration of revenue, we put in a provision in our agreement that basically said in two years, if this one particular client leaves, that we have to adjust our purchase price after the fact. So it was kind of a unique situation on that second deal. You know, the first one, Chris and I were just, we were so eager. We were so, so excited. We basically said, okay, what do you want? We'll give it to you. The second one, we had a little bit more negotiation power, negotiating power, because you know it, it's not like we absolutely needed the business. It would have been a very a good business to complement what we currently had, and so we were a little bit more picky, I guess. And so one of the things that we said, you know, going back to my my previous statement, was that we're going to do a look back period of two years, and we're going to analyze the the revenue that actually stayed with us over a two year period. And whatever percentage falls off, that's the percentage that we're going to reduce the purchase price by. And so we did a 70-30 deal where the bank gave the retiring CPA 70% of the sales price and they held back the 30% for that adjustment. And so it's different. And we didn't do anything differently between the two purchases. We, we kind of handled the transition the same. It's just, just really depends on the client makeup and, and the type of work that the CPA is doing. But we had, you know, I would say overall, we had, we're very blessed with, with great retention. Okay. Well, since you've done this twice, I'm curious if you were going to do it again, is there anything you'd do differently? Any lessons you learned from the first and second time? I probably would have done it earlier, to be honest with you. <laughs> but yeah, acquisition is not off the table. It's always going to be an option for us as a means to grow the practice. 
I really don't know if I would have done anything differently. We, Chris and I, we did a lot of due diligence work with both practices, but I honestly say that I don't know if I would do anything differently. And maybe it's just because it just went so smooth in our minds. You know, we read some horror stories. We've actually, you know, in speaking with the broker, because the broker on the first deal was different than the broker on the second deal. And, you know, we, we've kind of, we asked them for some horror stories and based on some of the things that we've heard, I think ours went pretty smoothly. And so, yeah, I'm not sure I would do anything differently. Okay. You know, you haven't heard this episode yet because as we're recording this, the episode hasn't been released, but I interviewed Jim Oliver, who just merged his practice in with Calvetti Ferguson, and he's the incoming chair for TSCPA. And he, like you, started in audit, (laughs) but then basically built a practice around tax. Feel free to disagree with me, or please do, if, Mm -hmm. if you have a different viewpoint of this. It seems like if you have an interest in being self-employed that maybe getting into tax initially is a better bet because it's easier to build a firm based on tax, right? Absolutely, Mark. I I agree with you a thousand percent. And here's why. When we bought that first firm, there was absolutely no assurance or audit business whatsoever. Hmm. You know, audit clients are obtained through relationships generally. And, you know, there's a bidding process usually involved in audits. And once you get an audit, generally, not all the time, but generally, there is a rotation requirement as well. So to go out and buy an audit practice would be very difficult because of several things. But one of them being, you know, hey, in two or three years, they may go out for bids and you may not have that book of business anymore. Versus tax, it's most people don't want to switch tax preparers. Once they find one that they like, like your doctor. You just, you find one that you like and you stick with them. And so that relationship really keeps that bond there. And so I would say any CPA wanting to go out on their own, tax and accounting is probably the way to go. Because if you're going out, starting your firm and, and all you're doing is audits, well, when you're going through that bidding process to try to get an audit, you're going to have to disclose, you know, what your capacity is, what your areas of expertise are, what type of resources you have. And if you're going out on your own with no book of business, it's just you and, and that's it, you know? And, and, and a lot of clients, may, they may shy away from that, you know, because what happens if this person gets sick or what happens, you know, if this person gets hurt and we have an audit that's coming up that's due, is there going to be anybody else that can step in and, and take over that, that project? So I, I think it's rare that, that people go out and just, start their own audit practice. Now they may, you know, work at a firm, develop relationships while working there and then go out on their own while maintaining that relationships with, you know, with those organizations. But it's easy and it's residual income. You, you know, you pick up a tax client and like you, like I said, if you keep them happy, they're going to be your clients for life. And so that's probably why a lot of people go out on their own and start a tax practice. Mm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the rotation aspect, but that's that's mm-hmm. a great point. You're right. You're set to lose your client every few years. Absolutely. <laughs> no matter what. Absolutely. And and Chris has done a magnificent job of building that side of the business. I remember when we first started, I was a tax person. He was and he understood that going into this he wasn't going to have any clients, but that he would work to build up. And so he helped out with the accounting side of that first practice that that we purchased while I focused on the tax. And then as he built 
his network, you know, he started getting clients. I kind of took the accounting back from him and, and we kind of had that division of, of responsibilities. And what he's been able to do in five years is absolutely phenomenal. And I don't know if I can do something like that in such a short period of time, but that's just, you know, a, a testament to him and, and, and all the hard work that he's done over these past few years and all of the relationships he's been able to foster. It's a tough thing to do to grow practice from zero. You know, my, mine was easy. You know, I just had to go get a loan from a bank and, and that's how I was able to establish my side of the business. And, and, but Chris, you know, literally built it from the ground up with absolutely zero clients. Okay. Yes. Well, he's a very generous individual with assistance. I've noticed online and social media, he's helpful. He's a very helpful person. I'm sure that has really benefited him in the nonprofit world with all the audit work that he does. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's his primary focus. And, you know, he, he truly, we, us as a whole, but especially Chris, he really means it when he says he wants, he wants to give back to the community. Well, I gave Chris a little more of an opportunity, I think, for this, but I, I don't want to cheat you. What's your goal or, or vision for the future of Shriver Carmona? Where, where do you see this going? Well, I mean, ultimately, I think I'd like to create a legacy, something that my children, my nieces, my nephews can look forward to if they desire, you know, if they have that passion. You know, I really don't know. I don't think I ever want to be as big as a pageant or I just, I don't think I want to get that big. I like being a small firm. I like the atmosphere that we've created, very family oriented. Not to say that, you know, the larger firms don't have that. It's just a little bit more difficult when you have so many different personalities and and people. But I would say that, you know, just to keep chugging along until my kids are ready to take over. And, and hopefully that's the, the direction that they want to go and follow in their dad's footsteps. I have a, a nephew currently at UTSA. His name is Michael Robles. He's studying accounting. He, initially, he wanted to be an engineer, and I kind of persuaded him to explore the accounting world. He ended up doing very well. And so he's kind of my person that I, I think about when I, when I think about someone to kind of fill in my, you know, my role here. So that's kind of long-term. I just want to keep doing this until my kiddos are old enough to make their own decision. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a theme that I've seen through some of these podcast episodes. It's, it's pretty frequent for engineering majors, if they're going to make a change out of engineering, for them to become accountants and have a great career. It's, yeah. it's actually a pretty common theme. <laughs> well, it's funny that you mentioned that, Mark, because you know that's kind of what I wanted to do initially was was engineering, and then you know when I saw all those letters in math problems, I said, okay, well, you know, letters are not supposed to be in math problems, uh, so uh, <laughs> you know, accounting is is A plus B. Every once in a while, I'll do some division, but yeah, <laughs> the, the math was <laughs> the math was a little too complicated for me. And so I decided to change my major to accounting. I had a, growing up, I had a guy uh, played baseball with his father was a CPA and he did very well. And so prior to that, I didn't even know what a CPA was. And so that's kind of how I fell into, into my degree plan at UTSA. Interesting. Okay. Well, I want to get to the, the final little set of questions, but, but I have one, one more question, something you caused me to think about. Is there anything you did in particular to get up to speed, so to speak, on tax, or was it just a lot of hours and a lot of research when you guys acquired that firm and all of a sudden you went from 40 or 50 clients up to 
you know, a few hundred that you had to prepare returns for that year. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I first started doing it from my garage, I remember I printed business cards from my, my home printer. I printed flyers and literally went door to door, passing out flyers in my neighborhood. You know, I put up signs at busy intersections. That's kind of how I started getting clients. And at the time, it was one of those things that I said, look, if I don't know what I'm doing, I'm going to figure it out. You know, and so there was a lot of, like you said, staying up late, doing research, a lot of trial and error. Thank God for statute of limitations, because back then I probably screwed some tax returns up um, <laughs> throughout that process. But, you know, jumping into a firm with a more established book of business, absolutely. A lot of late nights. I, I really feel that my success is a result of my, the support that I had from my wife. You know, she understood kind of what I was getting into. And she understood it was temporary that, you know, I wasn't going to be home that much during tax season because I was going to be working late. And when I was home, I was in the home office working, you know, as well. So it was a lot of research. Now I did, you know, I obviously had enough technical skills to prepare the most, I would say, relatively simple returns, but there were some that were complicated that absolutely had to do a lot of research on. Okay. I was just curious. I knew that was a, a big adjustment. And, you know, you make another good point in there for people that are thinking about going out on their own or acquiring a practice. It's very important that your spouse is supportive. I, I had the same benefit when I started my business. And yeah, I don't, I don't know that I could have done it otherwise because then you're fighting Absolutely. two battles. So. That, yeah, that's right. And, and no, she's been, she's been great. She's been, you know, the, my rock when I was stressed out and I remember that second practice that we purchased, I had hopes of hiring someone with at least five years of experience to kind of take over the first practice so that I could focus on the second practice. Well, I wasn't able to find anybody that was within my budget. And so, you know, it was extremely stressful that second time around. I remember working seven days a week, 12, 13 hours a day, you know, it got to the point where I actually developed I had some hair loss because of the stress and the lack of sleep. I wasn't eating very well. I wasn't going to the gym. I was, I'm, I was an avid gym goer and you know, exercise all the time. And so, you know, I didn't have time for that. Drink lots and lots and lots of caffeine. But absolutely, you, you have to have a supportive family because, you know, tackling something like that on your own is, would be a pretty daunting task, in, you know, in my, in my opinion. Hmm. Well, I end every podcast with the same four questions. I think it gives some good consistency to our episodes. The first one is, what has been your proudest moment? Well, obviously, aside from marrying my wife and having our three children, I'd say going out to buy a firm at the age of 28. You know, I, I can remember most people would say, well, you're, you know, you're too young or you don't have enough experience, you know, but everyone learns at, different, at a different pace. And, you know, everyone has their own fears and, and things that would prevent them from going out and doing things. But I would say, you know, being 28, having made up my mind, that was probably my proudest moment. And, you know, I remember when, the, when we started visiting clients back in 2010, I handed uh, a gentleman my business card, you know, obviously at the top, it said Shriver Carmona. And he looked at it and he looked at my name and he pointed to it and said, oh, so is this your dad here? And, and you, you're working for your dad? <laughs> yeah, that was uh, a kind of a punch to the gut. But, and it was something I knew I was going to have to overcome. It was a hurdle that I was going to have to overcome that, you know, the, that my age and the way I look would correlate to inexperience. But it was just something I had to, I had to prove to, to the clients that, you know, I knew what I was doing and that, you know, I would take good care of them. 
Oh my gosh. Wow. That's, that's classic. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. What did you say? I'm just curious. Do you remember? No, I we I kind of laughed and I said, no, that's me. You know, I know I look young, but trust me, I I, I have the experience and, and we'll take good care of you. <laughs> but I think he was a little embarrassed, at the, you know, but I, I, yeah. I try to try to brush it off as, as just being a misunderstanding. Wow. Well, tell us about a mistake you've made and what you learned from it, of course. And, and frankly, the bigger, the better. Sure. You know, actually... Similar to Chris's, my marriage proposal was a, I wish I could have done that over again. I won't go into really? details. Cause, yeah, but, but yeah, you know, it was, I could have did a better job. And, and my wife teases me all the time, but, you know, one day I'll make it up to her. But um, in terms of career wise, I think my biggest mistake was thinking that I can do it all by myself. Going back to that second transition, you know, time was up. I couldn't find anybody. I, you know, rather than reaching out to a recruiter such as yourself or maybe other CPA firms that could lend me some some capacity, you know, I figured, you know what, I can do this, and and I did it. Don't get me wrong. It's just I sacrificed a lot that year in terms of sleep, in terms of being home with with the kiddos and my wife, you know, and I dropped some balls as a resi- you know, as a result of all the work that I had to do, but. That was probably one of the biggest mistakes that I that I made. I know I think probably would have thinking back, I probably would have started that process a little earlier in terms of trying to find someone to help. It's just you know you you procrastinate, and then next thing you know, it's it's November, December, and not a lot of CPAs are, are looking to leave at that point. So yeah, um, that would be the the other mistake that I would probably that I regret, but is not having a partnership agreement. And, you know, when you're starting out, not to say that anything, you know, between Chris or I happened, but, you know, we did have a third partner at some point. I'm kind of airing out some dirty laundry, but, you know, we had a, when we first started, there were actually three partners and, you know, we were all buddies. And of course, it's not about the money until it's about the money, but we didn't have a partnership agreement on that first acquisition. On the second acquisition, the bank actually required it. So I went out to Google and I just Googled partnership agreement, found a generic template, changed the names and dates, and the three of us signed it and sent it off to the bank, not really thinking anything of it. And I think it was a couple of years later, or a year later or two, one of the partners decided to go in, in a different direction. And had it not been for that partnership agreement, things might be different. And so that that is one, I guess, mistake that I avoided and, and maybe another recommendation to anyone out there going into business with, with another person is they could be family, they could be significant others, but just have it in writing because like they say, it ain't about the money until it's about the money. Sure. Sure. You know, I think that's pretty common actually for people because you're so excited about starting the business in the first place and getting it going or acquiring that you're thinking, well, the rest of the details we'll just take care of later. And, That's uh, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I interviewed about this right before the second practice that we purchased. I had a neighbor who was a, an extremely successful architect and he had an architect firm with two other partners, 30 plus years. And one of the things that I asked him during the time that we found out that one of our partners was thinking about going in a different direction was, you know, hey, you've been in business for 30 years. What would you attribute your successes to? And he said, as long as everything is fair, then everything should be good. You know, and what he meant was just because you're a partner doesn't mean you get to split everything 
three ways. If partner A is doing 50% of the work, partner A should get 50% of the pay. And, and that's the only way to keep it fair so that there's no, you don't build up any resentment because at, at that point, things can get pretty ugly pretty quickly. So, and so we, we, we took that and, and we practice that today. You know, it's, it's as long as everything is fair, there should be no problems. Okay. Well, who's been the biggest mentor or biggest influencer so far in your career? You know, I've had several at different stages of my life. You know, growing up, my father was an extremely hard worker. He's former military. And during his, his time in the military, he had multiple jobs when he was enlisted early on in his career. So I would say, you know, I, I took a lot of his work ethic from him. You know, he was a great example of what it meant to work hard and, and provide for your family. As I kind of matured in my, my professional career, the folks at Valero really were my biggest mentors. And there's not just one in particular. There were several in that internal audit department. It was headed up by Lee Bailey at the time. There were so many people that were just extremely talented, extremely intelligent. And, and I picked up a lot of things from, from everyone, you know, a little bit of from everybody there in terms of how to communicate. And then, you know, and now it's probably Chris, my partner. I've learned a lot from him. I'm, you know, I'm the type of person that's kind of ready, shoot, aim, you know, and he's more the, hey, let's, let's take a step back and look at this and, and think about it before we make a decision. So, you know, I, I, you know, I go to him a lot when things come up that I want to jump on or react to. And, and he's, you know, he, he helps me kind of take a step back, look at it from a different perspective to, to see, is this the way we want to react or is this the way, you know, the direction we want to go? So I've learned a lot from him in terms of communication, HR issues, and just really taking a step back and, and thinking about the situation. Okay. Okay. What's the best advice you've ever received? Wow. That's a tough one. Um, <laughs> you know, another one of kind of my biggest mentors is my uncle. His name is Denny Dems, hmm. extremely successful real estate investor. And kind of, he was, I remember, I vividly remember visiting him when I was a kid. We pull up in, you know, this huge house. And that was kind of the first taste of wealth that I got to experience. There's a couple of things that he told me that really stick out in my mind. The one is when we were getting ready to when I was telling him about my ambitions on, on going out to purchase a firm, you know, one of the comments that I made to him was that you really have to have money to make money. And what he told me was, no, you don't always have to have money to make money. You can use someone else's money to make money. Just be smart about leveraging debt. And so that kind of opened up my eyes to use the bank as an opportunity to go out on my own. The other thing he said was, you know, as we were, every time I, I'm going to do something, I, I kind of reach out to him for some advice. And there was a, on the second deal, I, I kind of approached him and, and kind of showed him the information and was going raving about all the positive things that could happen. And, and what he said to me was, you don't do a deal for the potential upside. You do it for the potential downside. Meaning if everything were, were to go to crap, would you be okay? And if so, then great, go ahead and do it because the potential upside would just be a bonus. And so I would say those two things are probably some of the best advice that I've ever received. That is interesting. I've never heard it put that way. You don't do a deal mm -hmm. for the potential upside. You do it for the potential downside. Okay. Hmm. And that's, it you know, applies to real estate. Nice. You know, you're going to, yeah, if you're going to buy a rental property, yeah, it could appreciate 20% over the next five years. But what happens if the market crashes and, and it's worthless? Are you going to be okay? And if so, that's probably a good investment for you. That is interesting. Thank you. Thank you very much. Absolutely.
Well, the last question, and hopefully the easiest, is if somebody wants to get a hold of you and talk to you about the process of using a broker or the process of acquiring a firm or running a practice or or just anything about your background, what's the easiest way to reach you? Probably email would be the easiest way to get in touch with me. You know, this time is it's really tough to kind of to kind of get me on the phone, you know, with all the client meetings and the preparation for the upcoming tax season. I don't mind you, Mark, putting my email address on your website okay. and, and having folks reach out to me that way. Well, if you don't mind, if you could, if you could give us the email on the audio, that'll be helpful as well. Sure. It's D Shriver and that's D-S-C-H-R-I-V-E-R at S-C-C-C-P-A.com. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you. That's very generous of you. I really appreciate it. No problem. I'm, I'm glad to help. You know, it's, there's enough work to go around for everybody. <laughs> well, I'm going to plug Chris's episode one more time because you mentioned marriage proposal. And for any listeners that are listening to your podcast here, if you didn't listen to Chris's, if nothing else, you need to listen to how Chris proposed to his wife because it's just, <laughs> it's classic. It really is. <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> I'll have to have you back on to tell yours later on. So <laughs> One day, if I get the courage. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Derek. I know we're going into busy season. So thank you again for, for joining us. We will have the, the show notes online as soon as this goes live. And I very much appreciate you, you taking the time to, to fill in the gaps and, and give us the rest of the story. Thank you. Absolutely, Mark. Thank you. Thank you again for the opportunity. And I think it's great what you're doing here. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we'll talk to you again soon. Yes, sir. Have a good night. Well, as I mentioned in the intro, they have a very interesting story at Shriver Carmona and Company, and I especially appreciated how much insight Derek shared about how they acquired the two practices in the first place, as well as the advice he gave on what to consider when you're looking to acquire a practice. If you haven't yet visited our homepage at www.whereaccountsgo.com, you can find links to previous episodes as well as a job board and an events section for accounting associations across the state. Thank you again for joining us for this episode of Life in Accounting, the Where Accounts Go podcast. We'll see you next week. There's more to come.